Hey, Beltway Park, a few weeks ago, we did a big outreach as a church. On Halloween, we sent thousands of people all into the big country. And part of this outreach is we gave people the opportunity to be entered into a drawing that we were going to do every Sunday in the month of November. We were going to pay somebody's rent or mortgage. We were going to give a big gift card for groceries and a gift card for gas. And we had hundreds of people fill out this form. And it was incredible. And every Sunday, we got the joy of getting to give those three things away. But one of the things that we did is we read through every single one of the hundreds of forms that were turned in. And one of the questions that was on there is how can we be praying for you? And as we read those, we saw the deep need that exists in the big country. We saw people that were walking through divorces and they were not sure how they were gonna be able to stay in the homes that they were and someone that was in the process of adoption and they, they were struggling to like pay for all the expenses that go along with that adoption or recently unemployed that they were struggling to make ends meet and then they're going into Christmas and not sure how they're gonna buy gifts for their kids and just financial difficulties in every single area and every single arena. And we knew that we were walking into this series called Unwrapping, Unwrapping Christmas where where we're talking about the gifts that Jesus was given and what they tell us about him. And we thought it would be really beautiful for us to get to take some of these needs that we saw from this Halloween outreach and then the gifts that about Jesus and get to have these things meet and us go into our city and help meet these needs. And we wanted to show you a few of those right now. Dana, oh, hey, how are you? Hi, how are you? Hi, Hi are you Raven? Awesome, I'm Jeffrey. So we wanted to give you a gift card for $500. We actually wanted to give you a gift card of $500 okay. and just tell you Merry Christmas. It's because of you that we get to do stuff like this. And we could actually do video after video and tell story after story of the ways the giving of your tithes and offering is impacting our city and the big country and all over the globe. It's, it's incredible the ways that the Lord is moving through you. Hi, are you Melinda? Awesome, I'm Jeffrey. Nice to meet you. Hi, are you Valerie? Yes. Valerie, I'm Jeffrey. Nice to meet you. Hi, are you April? Yes. Awesome. I'm Jeffrey Turner. Hello, thank you. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you as well. We wanted to give you a gift card of $500. We wanted to actually come by and give you a gift card of $500. Oh, okay. you know, I know when you uh, filled out your thing, you said it had been a hard season. So when you filled out your thing or whatever, you said yeah. it had been a hard season. And so you absolutely can. We thank know it's you. been a hard season. It's been a hard for... Yeah. It so much. Thank you. You're welcome. Absolutely. I'm a hugger. <laughs> Thank me? you. Trying to get back up is really hard. Mm -hmm. But we've been leaving everything in God's hands and he's been showing us that there's a way. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's Good. needed. <laughs> So we just want to say thank you. I personally just want to say thank you. It was so fun to get to go out into our city and do that. So thank you for the ways that you give. Thank you for the ways that you're generous. You are such a blessing. And we got to be a blessing into our community with these gifts this week. Come on, Beltway Park. You know the truth. When Jesus said it is more blessed to give than to receive, we know, doesn't matter if you're at our North Campus, part of our South Campus, if you're at a part of our online family, we know from experience this reality is true. Now, notice he doesn't say you can't receive. In fact, the entire basis of our faith is receiving. We can do nothing to give towards our salvation, nothing we can do to earn, and yet we receive. 
So the foundation of our faith is receiving, but our maturity in faith happens as we learn to be givers, as we learn to be generous in everything in our life, and we're going to find our life to be more and more blessed as we do that. Jesus says there is a greater blessing, a greater joy as we learn to give. And come on, if there's anything attached to a modern-day celebration of Christmas, it is the idea of gift-giving. But the origin of that idea isn't new. It actually goes back to something that happened the very first Christmas. We've been looking at the second chapter of Matthew, 12 verses for the last couple weeks. We're going to finish it today. It starts, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Question for you. How did they know that was his star? I mean, it's just kind of a working assumption. We have told the story so often that the wise men, the magi, by the way, wise men, magi, same guys. Just a different translation of a word in the original language of the Bible, so don't confuse them. But how in the world did they connect the star with the Jewish king? I mean, you think about it, if this entourage of people show up to you, your king of Israel, and they say, hey, we saw a star, and we think you're going to have another king born. Herod and his guys are probably thinking, these boys be crazy. But that's not the response, is it? When you look at verse 3, Herod the king heard this, and he was troubled. Why was he troubled? Because if the king was born, that means he's no longer going to be what? King, right? And all of Jerusalem with him. Jerusalem's all stirred up because Herod stirred up. So he assembled the chief priests, the scribes of the people, and he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, Bethlehem in Judea, for so it was written in the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So Herod summoned the wise men. He ascertained from them, when did this star happen? When did it appear? And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, hey, you go and you find the child. And when you have found him, bring word to me, because I too want to come and worship him. So Herod doesn't dismiss these guys that show up as rich, eccentric, whack jobs from the east. I mean, as soon as they say something about a king being born, it's like he and the advisors naturally accept that possibility. And they connect it to the words of the prophet Malachi, that the Messiah, the king of the Jews, is supposed to be born in Bethlehem. Why? How did they connect the star with the king? Well, tucked away towards the end of a book in the Old Testament, the book of Numbers. Now, I'll be honest with you, that book of Numbers is one of those we get stuck in. You're kind of doing that daily Bible reading thing, and if you make it through Leviticus, you're like feeling good about yourself, thinking I'm over a hump, and boom, I hit Numbers. And Numbers starts with the census of Israel and all this stuff, and we wonder why in the world it's in there. It's actually in there because God had a plan for the Jewish people, and for the Jewish people to fulfill the sovereign plan that God has for them, they had to remain a people. This is how they remained a people for thousands and thousands of years. They did census. They did genealogies. All those things indicate of the great work God has done in sending Jesus through the Jewish people, but hear me, there are greater riches coming to the world by what he's going to do through the Jewish people. Another sermon for another day. But anyway, tucked away towards the end of this book is another story. It's the story of Balak, king of Moab. 
Balak has been observing a new people coming through the area. They're called the Israelites. They've been recently freed from Egyptian captivity. A guy named Moses showed up. Ten plagues happened. God releases the people, and now they're wandering in the wilderness. And sometimes when you wander in the wilderness, you get on other people's land. When you're on other people's land, they get upset, and they begin to battle against you. But the Israelites, even though they've been slaves for, four, for 400 years, they are whipping everybody that they come in contact with. And Balak, king of Moab, feels like, i got to do do something to be able to stand against Israel. There seems to be something divine with these people. So he makes a hire. He adds to his staff a guy named Balaam. And he contracts with Balaam to actually come and curse Israel. Now the scripture doesn't tell us why Balak hired Balaam, but I think it's safe to assume that Balaam had a reputation for being a man of great spiritual power who could actually invoke a curse on the people. You can read the story for yourself, just write down in your notes, Numbers 22 through 24. It is an intriguing story, like this is the story where Balaam has the donkey talk to him. Same guy, all that kind of stuff. If you will read and meditate on it, there's a lot in that story. Anyway, four times, Balaam goes out to do what he's been hired to do, to fulfill his contract. He is going to curse Israel. But four times, the sovereign God would not allow him to curse Israel, but he actually ends up blessing Israel. In the fourth prophetic word over Israel, the one where he's supposed to curse, but instead he blesses, like God is using Israel. Someone that was not his follower. By the way, if you think God is limited to just using his followers in the world, you haven't read the Bible. He is sovereign and doing his work. But in this, where he is using Balaam, Balaam actually speaks these words. I see him, but I don't see him now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Israel, Jacob, same father of the people. Jacob was his earlier name. Israel was his latter name. And from him came the nation of Israel. And we see the reality. The star was actually prophesied. And these wise men, the Magi, were watching for it. They were looking for the star that would come out of Jacob, and they knew the scepter was one who would be a ruler. It was a prophetic word. So because of this, some scholars today believe that there was a school of seers, of stargazers that came from the guy Balaam. And the wise men were actually from that school. But we don't know that. Other scholars say, no, that doesn't have to be the case, that maybe these wise men were just influenced greatly from the ancestors of the Jews that were in um, Babylonian captivity, guys like Daniel and Ezra and Nehemiah and Ezekiel and the like, and they knew of the prophecy about the Messiah. I, I don't know that it matters. All we know is that the Magi had latched on to one prophecy about the Messiah, and they had been observing the stars, their school of thought for hundreds of years, and they finally saw this one star that they were watching for. Verse 9, after listening to King Herod, they went on their way. And behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, I would say more specifically when they saw what the star did, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Now see that phrase for a second. Rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So when they saw the star move, they didn't just smile and go, ah, we got it. These guys have been traveling. They took off on a journey. They didn't know how long it would take. They didn't know how far they'd had to go. They end up in Jerusalem, and they find out maybe Bethlehem's a place seven miles away. On the way to Bethlehem, the star moves. 
I can't explain it to you how it came to rest over the place, but they know the very house. And when that happened, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So they are undone with joy. I mean, do you get a picture? A couple of weeks ago, I was, found myself watching the second half of the Baylor versus Oklahoma State football game for the Big 12 championship. Now, I'm not, just be honest with you, I don't watch a lot of sports um, this day and age, but I have some good friends who um, bleed like Baylor green and gold. So when I do watch sports, I kind of watch Baylor a little bit on behalf of them. And to be honest, Baylor for the longest time were cellar dwellers in everything they did. Now they're a pretty good athletic program, so I'm a Johnny-come-lately on the Baylor fandom list and that kind of stuff. Well, with less than a minute left in the game, Oklahoma State has driven the football inside Baylor's 10-yard lines. They're five points down. They've got four downs to get into the end zone. If they do, they win the game, and they win the Big 12 championship. Three downs they try, three downs they fail. It is fourth down. They are on the one-yard line. It is the last play, last-ditch effort for them to be able to win the game. Quarterback takes a snap, tosses it to the tailback who is sweeping left, and he's going for the corner of the end zone. And it looks like no one's going to be able to stop him when out of nowhere a Baylor safety starts going after him. And there is a tackle, bang, bang, playing right there at the one. And the, and the camera scene on TV showed it exactly that he was short, that he didn't make it in there. And I'm on the edge of my seat, and when it happened and he goes down, I jump up and I yell, he stopped him! He stopped him. My dogs scatter. They have no idea what is going on. My cats, well, we don't have cats because we're a righteous family. Uh, but other than that, my wife comes running in. And she said, what's going on? I said, you got to watch this replay. It is amazing what happened. And they show the replay. And then they go to the Baylor crowd. And they are going absolutely crazy. That is what I think of when I think of this verse. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Can you imagine the star moved? And they've been on the road for who knows how long, and they're saying, we, we got it, we got it. They are jumping up and down. They are shouting. They are high five. I don't know if you high five back then or not, but you get the point. They were rejoicing exceedingly with great joy. Why? Because they had found the king. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down. This is a big word. They fell down and worshiped him. This is much bigger than we think. It is likely that the wise men, the magi, were not Jewish. Remember when they showed up and they talked to Herod, they said, where is he who's been born the king of the Jews? They don't say, um, where's our king? So you got to realize in those days, most people who were spiritually minded were polytheistic. They believed in multiple gods. So these gods would all be attached to a people group. So they were looking for the king of the Jewish people. Now, I'm assuming that the Magi had heard from the Jewish people that were in the exile, if that's where they got it, or from stories gone by, that the Jewish people believed that Yahweh was not just a God, but he was the God, the king of all kings. But I don't know if they necessarily believed that because every people group said their God was the most powerful God. But then they go to the house with Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, and all of a sudden they are overcome with reality. I'm going to challenge you that the presence of God filled that room. And they fell down. This isn't just the king of the Jews. This is the king of kings. They didn't merely speak lofty words or casually bow on a knee. They were overcome. That word fall down in the original language is like a vase being shattered. It's almost as if they were powerless to stand. And they fell prostrate before him because they were giving worship to the king. 
It's interesting to me. We've read 11 verses, and there's three responses to Jesus that original Christmas. I would challenge it's still the ways we respond to him today. You have a guy named Herod, and Herod opposed Jesus. Herod is known historically for two things. One, Herod was this tremendous builder. I've been to Israel numerous times, and there's all sorts of artifacts of what Herod did. Like Herod was the guy who invented a concrete that would harden underwater. We still use the basic premise of what he created in when we do stuff in water and put concrete underwater like oil rigs. He didn't do that. He actually built a port city. The only port in Israel was a long way from Jerusalem. They wanted to get one closer, and so he just built one. And he created this port city, and he named it after the Caesar in Rome, and called it Caesarea, which, by the way, is where the first Gentiles believed in Jesus. He went on a four-decade remodel of the second temple in Jerusalem and turned it into one of the wonders of the ancient world. He built a fortress you might have heard of. You need to see some shows on it sometime called Masada. It's up on this plateau, and the things they did at Masada, architecturally and engineering-wise, were phenomenal. Like in the middle of the Judean desert, they've got flowing water up on top of a plateau. The things they did were phenomenal, and the reason he did it was because of the second reason that we know of him. He was extremely paranoid. He built Masada as a last holdout for his power. As far as we know, Herod never visited Masada. Just had it built just in case. Just in case some people attacked him, he had a stronghold to go to. But we do know he was paranoid. He had several wives. Every one of his wives he either put into exile or he put to death so they could not turn against him. Most of his children he slayed. In fact, his favorite son, who was supposed to become the next king, five days before Herod the Great died, he was sick. Maybe he knew he was going to die. Maybe he thought he could somehow overcome that. He actually put his favorite son to death five days before his own death to try to keep his position of power, to somehow try to hold on. See, Herod the Great would do anything in an attempt to keep power and control. He even tried to manipulate the wise men, right? He told them, hey, hey, you go find him. Come back and tell me so I can go worship him. He had no intention of going to worship him. He was going to take out anyone who threatened his control. It's what many of us do today. Like many today, Herod was going to do life his way and bow to no one. But it's not the only response to Jesus. You see the Jewish leaders, and the Jewish leaders were indifferent about Jesus. I mean, think about the scenario. This entourage of wealthy, influential people arrive in Jerusalem. They've shown up, again, we don't know how many months, maybe over a year that they've traveled, and they've seen this star. No one else in Israel has noticed the star, but they have seen the star, and they are connecting it to the words of Balaam, the prophet of God who really wasn't of God. He was just being used of God. And they said, we think your Jewish king has been born. And they say, well, if it's the Jewish king, it's the Messiah. It's the Christ, and he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. But they won't travel with them seven miles to see if the king has been born. I mean, it is my suspicion, I can't prove it to you, but it's my suspicion that the wise men took them outside at night and said, there it is. That's the star right there. The king has been born. But they weren't willing to even be inconvenienced a little bit to see if the promised one had born. They were very indifferent, casual about the possibility that the promised one had arrived. But the magi, the wise men, what did they do? The wise men worshipped the king. 
Scripture says, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary and mother. And again, they fell down. They were broken in the presence of God. They worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, notice this phrase, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I was thinking about this passage, doing some reading this week. And a guy brought up the idea that I found really intriguing. Is it possible that originally they did not have any intention of giving these gifts to Jesus? Here's what I'm saying. These men are on a long journey. And to be able to make a long journey, guess what? They've got to have supplies that they carry with them to be able to do that long journey. I mean, they didn't have Venmo. They didn't have a credit card. They didn't have things like we do today. They needed gold so that they could pay for supply in city after city along the way. And if they were carrying gold, it means they probably had a a small army with them as well. They needed frankincense because there's going to be medical needs that arise on such a long journey. And they need to be able to care for it. And they had myrrh because, well, I mean, they're going to be out in a harsh um, journey for a long time. And it's likely somebody in their group is going to die along the way. And they needed to be ready. So they had treasury of goods that was supposed to get them to where they were going and to get them home. Again, they opened their treasury and then they gave them gifts. I can't tell you with absolute certainty, but I do have to wonder. They show up, the king of the Jews they realize is the king of kings. Something overcomes them. They fall broken before him. And one of them says, hey, hey, open the treasury. We got to give him something. And one of the other ones says, hey, back the truck up there, dude. We got to get home. But the first one says, hey, we didn't just find the king of the Jews. We found the king of kings. And so what did they do? They offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And in this act, possibly a spontaneous act, I can't tell you either way if that is true, But in giving the gifts, they prophesied unknowingly about Jesus. The frankincense was about his role as high priest who understands all our struggles and all our weaknesses and makes a way for us to be with God. The myrrh tells us about the reason that he came, that he was going to die, and through his death we might have life. And the way of the kingdom is as we die, we find abundant life. But the gold, the gold declares always that he's not just a king. But he is the king, the king of all kings. And so they did that first Christmas what you do with a king. They worshiped. Christmas is about worship to the king. I challenge you, read the Christmas story this week. It's like five chapters. You can have a couple of chapters in Matthew, a couple, one chapter in John, a couple of chapters in Luke. It won't take you very long at all. And what you're going to find is the entire story is about worship. You'll see in Luke that there's a guy named Zechariah. Zechariah is serving as a priest in the temple. The angel shows up and says, your wife's going to have a miraculous birth. He says, my wife's really old, dude. I'm old. Look at me. And he says, well, because you didn't believe me, you're not going to be able to speak. He comes out. He's unable to speak. For nine months, he cannot speak. They're told that they're going to name the child John. There's no one in their family named John, and you always name a son after someone in the family. And when the Zacharias asked, what will you name the child? He said his name is John. John, And his mouth opened up, and he is able to speak. And you're going to find that all he begins to do is give worship to God. Mary, after she has had an immaculate conception, no sexual union, but she is pregnant, she journeys to Zachariah's wife, a woman named Elizabeth, who has a miraculous Pregnancy, not an immaculate, but a miraculous pregnancy. Mary shows up, and the one that's in Elizabeth's womb that we're going to know as John, we're going to know as John the Baptizer, begins to leap and dance in the womb. 
And Elizabeth is overcome, and she speaks a word over Mary. And Mary then begins to bust out in song in praise to the God. She's given praise. A group of angels show up to a group of shepherds that night. You've heard the story. One of them declares the praise of what God's doing in the earth to the most unlikely of people. And then a choir of angels show up and they give praise to God. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm thinking the shepherds, uh, the angels could have other things they could be doing that night. Like I'm thinking they could be helping Mary and Joseph find a room. Or maybe they could get a doctor to help Mary have a baby. Or at least they could have found a decent crib to put the baby in. But what do they do? They worship. And then when the shepherds show up and they find everything as the angels told them, they too begin to worship. And then you find the magi, the wise men who have traveled for who knows how long, who knows how far, and different than what Herod would do in his opposition in contrast to what the Jewish leaders would do in their indifference. The wise men worship. Listen to me, I implore you, do not minimize the word worship. Worship is not an event we attend on a Sunday morning or a Thursday night or a special night. Worship is not a style of music as contrasted to hymns that we may or may not like. In the scripture, worship is a summary word. People who love and follow Jesus worship him. People who love and follow Jesus give him honor and praise. We see it in the Magi. Worship is the willingness to be different in pursuit of the king, just like the wise men. I mean, don't you think that one of the wise men had a struggle with his wife when he's taken off? I mean, don't you think one wife just looked at him and said, hey, so tell me that what we're going to do again. You're saying we are going to go to God knows where, and it's going to take us God knows how long, all because of two sentences spoken by some dude over 1,500 years ago about a star, and you think the star he talked about is the star you see in the skies. You boys be cray-cray, right? And yet they were willing to be different because they had to find the king. Worship is the willingness to obey even when it is risky, like the wise men. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed by their own country by another way. Question, don't you think Herod, like really paranoid Herod, so paranoid he killed his wives, put them in exile, killed his own children. The man trusted no one. When he discovered that he had been crossed by these guys, do you think he's a bit ticked off? And you know what he has at his disposal? He has an army. And these magi, even though they had their little squad of people to help protect them, they were no match for the army of a king. And they had to think, we better get out here quick and maybe, maybe he won't send his army after us. But in response to what God told them, they took the risk. And Herod could have sent his army after them. And he could have captured them and brought them back. And he could have showed them exactly what he does to people who dare to defy him. But they were willing to obey anyway. That is worship. Worship is the willingness to be generous with what you have, trusting the king to provide all you need for the future journey, just like the wise men. And opening their treasury, they gave him gifts. Gold and frankincense and myrrh. 
Worship is a willingness to take my entire being and cast it down in recognition that there is one much greater than I am. Are you hearing? It's more than our songs. It's more than our events. It's the totality of our life. Worship is the willingness to use our words, our actions, our lives to show anyone who will notice that Jesus is a king like no other king. It is what Christmas is about. See, Jesus is the king who will stand in the gap between us and God. And as a priest, he will battle for us to have rightness with God. Jesus is the king who took my garbage upon himself, who took my weaknesses upon himself, who took my sin upon himself. Jesus is the king who demands everything, absolutely. But before he demanded a thing, he gave us everything. Jesus is the king who gives everything before he demands anything of me. And listen to me. Jesus is the king who is returning. The Jewish people were not wrong about the nature of the Messiah. They just didn't realize there were two comings. He will come again. And it will not be in an out-of-the-way place. And no one notices who he is. This time everybody will see him. Sky will cut in two. And he, who is the son of David, will come down on a white horse, written on his thigh, one thigh, king of kings, written on the other, Lord of lords. And he is going to reign, I believe, literally on the throne of David, literally in Jerusalem. And he is going to fulfill the prophetic words, and then he is going to judge. He will stand as a judge, and he will give all the justice we long for, all the things we wonder what's wrong with this world. He will finish and make right. And we will all give an account for our lives. Hear me, on that day, every knee will bow. See, now we have a choice, just like in days of old. Because of his love for us, God wants to force nothing, but he wants to give everyone a chance to bow before him, to know the reality who he is. The scripture says that some of you think he is slow in his coming, but he is not slow in the way we think of slowness. No, he tarries. Because it is his heart desire, it's his longing. That all will come to a place of repentance and know him. That every Herod would bow their knee. That every Jewish leader and their indifference would be overwhelmed. That it is his desire that everyone would become wise. But there will be a day where no choice will be given. And he will establish himself as king of kings and lord of lords. And he is the king who is a creator. He is the one that John says was the word. And in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And all that has been made were made from the Word who spoke the Word. And He has not finished creating, but He is going to be taken, He's going to take all that has been marred by sin, this earth and the heavens. And He is going to utterly remake them. He is going to bring the new heavens and the new earth. For the old earth and the old heavens and passed away. He's going to bring a new order of things. And he is going to fulfill beyond what we can ask, think, or imagine. All the longings in the heart of his children are going to be fulfilled to a level that we cannot begin to imagine. Why is that? Because he is the king of all kings. And he is the Lord of all lords. And he demonstrated his kingness when he came the way he came. Fulfilled all those prophetic words. Hundreds of them. And then he went to that cross to show his heart. 
He is a king with power beyond what we can fathom, but he is a king with a heart beyond our ability to begin to conceive. It's Christmas. That's why Christmas is about worship to the king. And I'm telling you, Christmas today, right now, this week, I mean, we are on the final stretch, right? We are counting down our days. Christmas today, just like Christmas in the first century, demands that we look at our lives in light of Jesus. I mean, come on, where am I? If you're at home right now, where are you? If you are in the car, if you're at the North Campus, South Campus, I don't care. What is my response to Jesus? Don't give the church answer. I'm not going to ask you to do anything with it. I'm just asking you to be real honest. Am I responding like Herod? You can come to church and still be like Herod. But I'm going to keep control. Whatever it takes, whatever I do, I'm going to retain control. And I'm going to be that life is about me and it is for me no matter what it costs anyone else. Come on, is my life like the Jewish leaders? Casual? Indifferent? That I'll do some religious stuff? You know, I'll do some church some, but let's kind of get too radical. Let's not do get too carried away here. Let's not go overboard with this Jesus stuff. Or am I like the wise men? Am I a man? Am I a woman who worships? I'm talking about our songs, yes. Songs are important, but it's not just our songs. It is our life. My actions, the totality of my being. Am I a person who worships and longs to worship him more? You know what I've discovered? I've discovered that even though I believe with integrity, I can say I'm like a wise man. Wise man. I find remnants of Herod still in me. And I find remnants of the Jewish leaders and their indifference in me. And I want the Herod that is still in me, I want him to be put to death. And I want the indifference and the casualness. Come on, we've heard the Christmas story so many times. You want to know one of the unique challenges of my life? It's that we're at Christmas and the Christmas story hasn't changed. And this is like my 35th Christmas of preaching, it feels like. And trying to come up with some, something unique or something creative. But really, that's not what it's about. It's just about us realizing the depths of what God has done. And I want the Jewish leaders indifference that are still in me. And I want to be totality like the wise men. And so I would ask everyone right now to do this. I'd ask everybody to bow their heads. And let's just ask the Lord to do that work in our lives. Listen to me. We're going to have some songs of worship here in a second. I encourage you, take advantage of the opportunity. If you're part of our online family, man, we love having you. But I will tell you, the greatest challenge of being part of our online family is worship, in my opinion. It's just, it's harder to engage. It's harder to be a part of things. I get that you can, you just got to work hard at it. I challenge you online family. I want you to engage. I mean, if you're in your bed right now, still in your PJs, you can still stand up in a moment. You can still kneel. You can still worship. Turn the TV. Turn the sound system up. If you're at our physical campuses, we can just get passive. I encourage you. But it's not just about what we do in just a moment. I'm just talking about our lives. If you say, overall, I'm like Herod, but you know that this attempt to keep controlling your life is killing you, I tell you, fall down before him. Say yes to be his follower right now. If you find yourself indifferent like the Jewish leaders, Fall down before him. 
And if you say, I, I really am like a wise man, then I'm going to tell you what we need to do to have the other parts of the Herods and the Jewish leaders that are still inside of us to be put to death. We keep falling down before him. We keep falling down and we worship. See, Christmas is about worship to the king. The king who came. The king who died in our place. The king who is coming again to fulfill everything that he has promised. Christmas was about worship. Worship to the king. Let's join in with him. Father, we are a people who have been part of a busy season. There are lots of activities, and I think those activities, Lord, are meant to point us to you, but we confess that in the midst of activities, we sometimes miss you. Often we miss you. But we don't want that to be the story of the season, nor do we want it to be the story of our lives. We want to be those who worship and praise and honor. So I ask, oh God, that you would open the eyes, our eyes right now, that you give a spirit of wisdom and revelation right now. That we would know you in the way you're designed to be known. That just like I perceive that the wise men had a revelatory moment when they came before the baby Jesus and they knew this baby was more than just a baby. They knew more than a human king. They somehow knew he was king of kings and lord of lords. I pray we'd have that revelation in a deeper way this day. I pray, Father, that you would remind us, that you would expand us. I pray that we would have power, all of us as your saints, to grasp the heights, the width, and the breadth, and the depth of your love, to know this love. I pray, Father, the things we need to surrender, we will surrender to you. The things that we need to lay before you, we will lay before you, oh God. Anything we're holding back in opposition of you, I pray that we will give those to you. And I pray, Father, that as we give our songs to you this morning, it'll just be an indication of our lives being given to you. We really do love you, Lord, but we want to love you more deeply. We worship you but we want to worship you more than we've ever have. Work in our hearts and our lives, Father. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand, church. Online family, South Campus, and let's give some praise to our God. Come on, he is the king who is worthy, amen? Let's give him worship today.